It's early evening on April 15, 1912, aboard the RMS Titanic, some 440 miles off the coast of Newfoundland. The ship's bugler sounds the call to dinner. Other passengers turn to watch as Isidore Strauss and his wife Ida walk into the ship's first-class dining room. Isidore and his brother, Nathan, have taken over the business from their father, Lazarus Strauss. They've gone from leasing the basement of Macy's to selling fine glassware in China to acquiring the department store. At 67, Isidore is dapper in his tuxedo, a salt and pepper beard and a pink carnation on his lapel. Ida's shivering in her sleeveless black gown. Isidore lifts her fox stole from her elbows and drapes it snugly around her shoulders and gives her a playful squeeze. They've been married for 40 years and are still very much in love. Ornate scrollwork covers the walls and ceiling, all painted brilliant white. Isidore catches a whiff of roast beef and Yorkshire pudding in the cold sea air. His table mate on his right, Colonel Archibald Gracie, picks up a conversation they were having earlier on deck. Isidore, you were saying, Gimbel's brothers moved in across the street from you. Is, is that hurting business? Officially, Isidore is retired from Macy's, but as co-owner with his brother Nathan, he's still very involved in day-to-day operations. Well, we've had to meet Gimbel's discount prices to stay competitive. We've tried offering a bargain department on the fifth floor, but customers aren't too thrilled with it. No, I can't imagine some of my wife's friends wouldn't be caught dead going into the cheap part of the store. Have profits suffered much? Yes, we took a hit this quarter. That's why I'm on this ship. We booked one that left England later, but I need to get back to the store fast. Uh, my dear husband loves maiden voyages. We had been booked on the New York cruise ship on its first crossing. I'm sure the store needs you, but let's enjoy our journey, shall we? Isidore picks up on Ida's prompt to shift the conversation. They talk about the wonders of the Titanic, its saltwater swimming pool, the Turkish bath, and the squash courts. Later, he and Ida take the elevators to the Palm Veranda for coffee. They watch the younger passengers dance the night away to the waltzes played by the ship's orchestra. By 10 p.m., they are fast asleep below deck in their first-class cabin, carefree beneath goose-down quilts. Less than two hours later, a loud grinding noise and lurch of the ship awakens them. Ida reaches out for her husband. Dear, what was that? Isidore reassures her. He's not worried. They've been on lots of ocean liners, and after all, everyone says this is the biggest and the safest one ever built. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In the last episode, the Strauss brothers and their father Lazarus went from leasing a space in Macy's to owning the department store. And they did well, so well, that they drew a competitor from Philadelphia, the Gimbel brothers. 
Isidore works hard at the helm of Macy's to best competitors. He'll do this for 15 years before he becomes a captain of industry and takes the fateful voyage on the Titanic. In the meantime, there's an insurgency rising in the houses of both Strauss and Gimbel's. The ambitious generation coming up in both businesses wants change. Now. This is Episode 3, Showdown Over Manhattan. It's 1898 in Macy's department store on 14th Street, Manhattan. A tall woman in an elaborately ruffled hoop-skirted dress rounds the corner of the glove department counter and collides with Nathan and Isidore Strauss. Nathan is the younger brother, 50 years old. He never forgets a customer's face or name. Mrs. Ambrose, excuse me, how clumsy of us. But Mrs. Ambrose welcomes the collision with the store's owners. She's lost. Mr. Nathan, Mr. Isidore, I am glad I ran into you. I want to get my husband a clock for his birthday. I've gone all over the store and can't find the clocks. Could you set me in the right direction? Isidore confidently steps in. He's masterminded the store's expansions, resulting in a labyrinth of passages that bewilder customers. He moved the men's section across the street. It has neckties, sock garters, and bicycles. But not clocks. Ah, Mrs. Ambrose, it's quite simple. You go out the 6th Avenue door. Then you go around the block to 14th Street. Now from there, you go in the door of the 4th building from the corner. You know the one that used to be Pierce's Barbershop, but now houses our stationery department. When you get there, just go to the back of that building, where there's one of our brand new... Mrs. Ambrose is trying to follow what Isidore is saying, but she can't believe it has to be this hard to get what she wants. Mrs. Ambrose looks more confused than ever. Nathan offers to escort her there. Later that night, Isidore and his family sit down to dinner at their large, rambling house on 105th and West End Avenue, Manhattan. Isidore's eldest son, Jesse, brings up his favorite subject. He's 24, a Harvard graduate, and his father has only recently given him a sales position at Macy's. But he's already gunning for a management spot and is flush with ideas. Papa, I keep telling you all the department stores are headed uptown. Lord and Taylor, B. Altman, Stern Brothers, all of them. They make us look like we're stuck in the last century. And half of our buildings are falling apart. Father, why spend so much money repairing an old jumble of a store when we could build a new one? But Isidore questions the wisdom of this mad rush northward. How far north can all this go? That lunatic Bloomingdale is up there on 59th Street in the howling wilderness. But Jesse's words stick with Isidore. He consults with his partner and brother Nathan about a move north. They decide to send Jesse and his younger brother Percy out to quietly buy up properties on Herald Square. They don't know the area has a nickname. The Tenderloin. It's 3 p.m. on a balmy March day in 1901. On the New York Herald's clock, two bronze statues of blacksmiths known as Stuff and Guff hammer out the hour. As the four Strauss men stroll down the street, Jesse talks up their progress. 
We're just about finished negotiating with the music hall. Coster and Bialz. See the sign there? Did you know that that was where Thomas Edison first projected his Vitascope motion picture? Isidore and Nathan shake their heads. They've never been to this neighborhood. The ground shakes beneath their feet as an elevated train car pulls into the rail station at 34th. Isidore is curious about the small three-story houses on either side of the music hall. What about the tenants in those brownstones? Are they eager to sell? Um, well, uh, that might take time. They're proving to be a little difficult to bring around. Isidore is surprised. Why is that? Jesse blushes and looks down, fumbling with his necktie. Well, Papa, most of the tenants are women. They run boarding houses of a sort for other women. They're quite convinced of the uh, high value of their properties. Nathan is amused by his nephew's embarrassment, but Isidore is clueless. Son, uh, just tell them there are much safer neighborhoods for women. They shouldn't even be living on their own in boarding houses in big cities like New York anyway. Why aren't they safely at home with their parents until they marry and have families of their own? Nathan laughs and comes to Jesse's rescue. My dear pure-minded brother, I'll speak plainly since Jesse can't seem to. You see that young lady over there, the one walking right towards us? Nathan points down the street at a wasp-waisted young woman. Huge ostrich feathers adorn her hat. The neckline of her dress reveals much more than is considered proper for a daytime wear, or as far as Isidore is concerned, any woman's clothing, any time, anywhere. Isidore is shocked. He turns to Jesse. That's the sort of lady who lives in all these boarding houses? Nathan knows how to handle his high-minded brother. Isidore, think of it this way. We're doing a great service for New York. We're clearing Herald Square of ladies of the night, so respectable and fashionable women will flock to shop at our store, right on the site where brothels used to be. A year and a half later, R.H. Macy's new store on Herald Square opens its doors. The move takes three days. Policemen and store employees stand guard all day at every corner, to prevent criminals from hijacking the 250 carts and wagons. A reporter from the New York Times fills a whole page with astonishing facts about the building. If the new store's floor planks were put end-to-end, they would extend from New York 75 miles beyond to Detroit. 93,000 feet of pneumatic tubes move cash throughout the store. 33 hydraulic elevators and four escalators can carry a total of 40,000 people an hour. The building has New York's first built-in vacuum and an air purification system. There are 46 miles of buildings. The next day in Philadelphia, 17-year-old Bernie Gimbel is at the breakfast table with his father, Isaac, president of Gimbel's Brothers Department Stores of Milwaukee and Philadelphia. He opens the newspaper and reads the same Times article aloud to his father. 4,000 workers are employed inside. In addition to a restaurant, a clinic, it also has its own fire station. Total cost, $4,980,000. Bernie stops, puts down the paper, and looks at his father expectantly. Bernie hasn't gone to the famous 
Wharton School of Business yet. He hasn't even finished high school, but he's already burning with ambition and cultivating a taste for taking big risks. For years, Bernie will plead with his father and his more conservative uncles to set up business right on Macy's doorstep in Manhattan. Reasoning, spreadsheets, and cajoling do nothing to persuade the Gimbel seniors. But Bernie will unexpectedly stumble upon a cunning plan to win their approval. One that plays right to their fears. It's 1909, a snowy winter night near Wall Street in Manhattan. Bernie Gimbel, 24 years old, is in Delmonico's Steakhouse, eagerly eyeing his ribeye slathered in mushroom sauce. Bernie was a former heavyweight boxing champion in college, and he looks it. He went straight from Wharton into the family business. In just two years, he rose from stock boy to vice president. His dining companion is his father's friend, Julius Rosenwald, the president of Sears Roebuck. Mr. Rosenwald, my father's probably told you about this deal we're working on to build a new store in Manhattan. In the 15 years Julius Rosenwald has run Sears, sales have grown from $750,000 a year to upwards of $50 million. Yes, Bernie, your father said he and your uncles think New York is too risky. But it seems you've brought them around to the idea. And I see they've taken out a lease on some property near Herald Square. Bernie takes a sip of Cabernet. Well, now there's a twist. We have an opportunity to buy the lot, but they say they still want a lease. Truth is, if we buy, the interest on the loan would be less than the rent. But my uncles won't budge. They say Gimbel's brothers are not in the real estate game. Julius looks at Bernie, wondering where this is going. Bernie presses on. The thing is, nearly all of the big names are heading to Herald Square, and the Pennsylvania Railroad is about to open a big station just a couple blocks away. Julius nods. He's quick with numbers and has a firm grasp of the city's retail scene. Yes, and with Macy's as the anchor of Herald Square, it's not that big a gamble. Hell, if I was sure we'd add brick and mortar to our mail-order business any time soon, I'd buy that land myself. Bernie's fork stops in midair. Wait, what did you just say? You'd, you'd what? Julius laughs. I said I'd snap it up. Having Macy's on your doorstep like that? You can't buy that kind of publicity or draw anywhere. For any price. Bernie puts down his fork. He has an idea. Mr. Rosenwald... Would you be willing to tell my father that if he doesn't jump on this deal, Sears might be interested? You know, just casually drop it in conversation and not even mention me. Julius Rosenwald gives Bernie an appraising look. He's not keen on stretching the truth, but he's a shrewd dealmaker, and he knows a savvy mover and shaker when he sees one. And right now, he's pretty sure he's looking at a genius. Bernie Gimbel's ploy works. And in the fall of 1910, Gimbel's opens a new 10-story tall $17 million emporium with a million square feet of floor space and 7,000 employees. 
a block away from Macy's. The race with Macy's is on, though the Strausses don't seem threatened. Isidore and Nathan Strauss welcome Gimbel's brothers with an ad in the New York Times. They figure with their 52-year head start, they can afford to be gracious. Times are good for the Strausses in 1910, but they won't be for long. It's 1 a.m., April 15, 1912, on the upper deck of the Titanic. The ship's band continues to play to the calm, worried passengers waiting to board the unsinkable ship's few lifeboats. Ida and Isidore Strauss are in line for lifeboat eight. The situation is more serious than they thought. When it's their turn, Isidore helps Ida aboard and then steps back. Confused, she calls out, Aren't you coming, Isidore? No, I can't. It's impossible. Ida scrambles out of the boat again and rushes back to Isidore's side. Where you are, I will be. I'm staying with you. She turns to her maid and takes off her fur coat. Ellen, I won't need this anymore. You take it and go. Ten minutes later, panicked crew members lower lifeboat eight with 39 passengers aboard. It's only half full. Their friends implore Isidore and Ida to board the last remaining boats, but they refuse. It's clear now that there are not enough lifeboats for the many left on board. The water rises. The last wooden boat is about to launch. Isidore takes Ida in his arms and begs her to save herself. Please, dear, please get into the boat! Shivering, she strokes his cheek and calmly refuses. Isidore, I have lived with you for 40 years. I have loved you, and I would rather die with you than live without you. As the lifeboats drift away on the dark waters, passengers can still see the couple standing silently alongside the rail of the now badly tilting ship, their arms around each other's waists. Nathan Strauss never recovers from the deaths of his brother and sister-in-law. Within a year, he sells his interest in Macy's to Isidore's three sons. This second generation of Strauss brothers are now at the helm of New York's top-grossing retail juggernaut. Macy's comfortable lead over Gimbel's is shrinking, and with the Gimbel brothers perched on their doorstep, the Strausses will face more hard times ahead. On the next episode, in the Roaring Twenties, money flows freely for luxuries, but bargains are a harder sell. When Gimbel's merges with swanky Saks Fifth Avenue, Macy's has to scramble to compete. And then, the stock market crash blindsides the Gimbel's, the Strausses, and the country. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We certainly hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. 
If you like what you've been listening to, it would be great if you give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way to support us is to answer a short survey at Wondery.com survey. And don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Barbara Bogave wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Sound designed by Kyle Randall for Bay Area Sound. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.